0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Last July 4th, on an outing to Long Island, when shots were fired in the vicinity, ProPublica reporter Nicole Hannah Jones says that between the four adults in the group, we hold six degrees. Three of us are journalists. Not one of us thought to call the police. We had not even considered it. We also are all black. And without realizing it, in that moment, each of us had made a set of calculations, an instantaneous weighing of the pros and cons. In an article recently published by ProPublica and Political Magazine jointly, Anna Jones says, "To a very real extent, you have grown up in a different country than I have." We're going to explore issues of race in America and in Utah today, including policing, criminal justice, education, other issues. We hope you'll join us at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five on email to Access at gmail dot com and on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And our guests include. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and we also bring in Kathy Abarca who is a racial justice associate with ACL Utah and a member of racially just Utah. Kathy Barka, welcome to the program.
1: Oh thank you thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us and I believe we are getting Ms. Hannah-Jones on the phone. Uh, tell me first what racially just Utah is.
1: Racially Just Utah is a relatively new coalition here in Utah. So it originated after the Deal Utah efforts in um, their event around 9-11. And community members kind of came up to the organizer of the event and just felt that there's a sentiment that there needed to be a focused effort and a focused discussion around race in Utah. And so out of that came Racially Just and we're um, really and our most recent event was Race Matters, Utah, where over 150 people were there discussing um, racial justice issues. You know. And I think it's, it's bringing this really great conversation that's really needed.
0: I think one question that occurs, and it, uh, this is uh, sort of playing devil's advocate, but uh, addressing a real concern some people might have, and that is uh, Utah's pretty white, right, right? Uh, Racial diversity is, is relatively low. Um, w- why the need to have this discussion and, and this group in Utah?
1: I think it's anything uh, that, that makes this discussion all the more pertinent, especially okay. in the context that Utah's demographics are changing. Um, people of color nationally and also in Utah are growing and are only going to continue to grow. And I think especially that in um, in addition to studies such as like the public religions research institute i know you've heard of this study that showed that white people 75 percent of them have entirely white social circles so i think that empowering these communities to make their conversations and their issues more visible are, are very necessary
0: hmm. yeah I, uh, you know i can i can see that that's there's some logic there and, and i think that that goes to a point um, and we we welcome in Nicole Hannah Jones now, ProPublica reporter. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We we appreciate you being on on the program. Uh, so to go to what Kathy Barker just uh, just said, um, this this article, this personal experience that you wrote, it was published uh, simultaneously in ProPublica and Politico magazine. Uh, it had an effect on me. I'm I'm a middle aged white man sitting in predominantly white Utah and so i have not had the experiences of course that you the, the you recount I mean i'm trying to understand and i and i think you've helped me to understand at least uh, in part so i wonder if we could we could go there to to your experience uh july 4th an outing to long island uh, several people involved uh, shots ring out and maybe you could take it from there what what happened
2: well we were walking down the beach enjoying the 4th of july like many people do um and suddenly a young man started shooting um, into a crowd of people and I was with uh, some friends, my husband, my four-year-old and of course we started running away from the shots. We had a um, a high school intern with us who was staying with us from Oregon actually for uh, the week and she was on the phone and we kind of stopped and asked who was she calling at that moment and she said she was calling the police and it then dawned on all of us that uh, we hadn't even considered calling the police. It didn't enter our mind, and that that was a um, very troubling thing to us.
0: And, and you, you're all, you all, know, all the adults are making a set of calculations. You're, you're weighing you're, the, the history that you've, you've had and the experiences you've had.
2: Right, and, and I think what, what stood out to us about that moment was we didn't even realize we were, we were making the calculations, that it was just so instantaneous um, with... All of our combined experiences with police and the way that we have witnessed policing um, in black communities and of black people that um, the police, calling the police invites a different kind of danger. And by then the danger had passed. The gunman was gone. We didn't see very much of him. We wouldn't have been able to give the police much um, in terms of um, physical description or who it was or anything like that. And so the calculation was, what's more dangerous, the guy who has already left or the police who, if you invite them, may see you as suspects and and something could go wrong? And so all of us decided, uh, without even consciously realizing we were deciding this, not to call the police, and realizing that when you have um, middle-class, law-abiding folks who do not want to call the police, that that is a problem.
0: And uh, tell us what happened to to Hunter this year. Your, your young young intern, she's she's biracial, uh, and was right. was visiting, I think, from Portland.
2: Right. So so Hunter calls and reports. Uh, she calls nine one one and reports the shooting, and um, pl- the police actually call her back after she gets off of the phone with nine one one, and they begin to ask her questions. Um, she tells them what she knew, but again, we it all happened very fast. Hunter. Is from Oregon. She knew nothing about where we were. She didn't. She wasn't able to give them, you know, really much detail at all. And the police began to call her back over and over again. Um, and she began to get really nervous. And by the end of that, um, the last time the police called her back, they asked her if she was really trying to be helpful or was she involved in the shooting. And you just kind of saw her. Her change and the fear over her face and she asked us, "Where the police going to come and get her? So you had someone who was trying to be a helpful, um, who was trying to do what good citizens do and within a few short minutes, and they were obviously talking with a teenager, she, she's 16 year, years old, she told them she's 16 she sounds like a kid um, she told them she wasn't from there and she quickly went from being a helpful citizen to being viewed with suspicion.
0: And you say in your piece that uh, this experience that you and your group had this was before Michael Brown and before John Crawford III and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner. And the list continues now. And we've now we've had, you know, these officer involved shootings. Now we're hearing about incidents at University of Oklahoma and University of Maryland and Instant in Madison, Wisconsin seems to just be continuing. And this 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 goes counter, obviously, to, I think, the, the hope that we have, the wish that we have that uh, can't we make progress?
2: Right. I think that a lot of um, white Americans have, have become aware of the problem because of what happened with Michael Brown, because of the Eric Garner video. But this is, there is a very, very long history of this happening in black communities. Um, and so while Michael Brown may be a household name, there are many household names, um, many, many black Americans, both men and women, who have been unarmed and killed by police. And this isn't a new story for us. This is a very old story. And really, of, of all of the the so-called race riots that have occurred in this country since the 1930s, um, they've almost always involved an instance of police brutality. Hmm.
0: The, let me quote you here. You say, for those of you reading this, uh, talking about your article in ProPublica and, and uh, Politico, who may not be black or perhaps Latino. This is my chance to tell you that a substantial portion of your fellow citizens in the United States of America have little expectation of being treated fairly by the law or receiving justice. It's possible this would come as a surprise to you, but to a very real extent, you have grown up in a different country than I have. That's a strong statement.
2: Yeah, I think it's important. I get a lot of comments, um, and if you look at the comments on every any story about policing where people don't seem to understand they they say things like if you're if you are abiding by the law you don't have anything to worry about from the police and if the police stop you why don't you just comply um, i and that's because policing in white communities looks very very different from policing in black communities um, policing in white communities is is generally on the protect and serve model but policing in black communities can often look and feel like an occupation where By virtue of you sharing the same color skin with someone else who may have committed a crime, uh, you are often viewed as um, under the eye of suspicion, um, can be stopped, can be frisked, can be detained, can be arrested, all because you share um, the same races as someone else. Um, In my neighborhood, surveillance towers regularly pop up. Um, You see people walking to the store and they they can be stopped and detained and it's kind of a constant thing um and i think that 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 level and that type of policing and often policing that is very disrespectful i've had many experiences myself uh, with being treated disrespectfully by the police when i've done nothing wrong when there's no reason um for that to happen and being treated disrespectfully by the police in front of my own child um so i think that For many white Americans, they don't understand this distrust of the police because this is not how they experience policing. Hmm.
0: Let me turn back to Kathy Barka. Again, she's a racial justice associate with ACLU Utah and a member of Racially Just Utah. And uh, we had a conversation on this program with uh, Chris Burbank, uh, chief of police at Salt Lake City, uh, soon after the Ferguson um, happenings uh, he's committed he says to community policing he, he understands the the frustrations and anger in, in black communities um, in in many many places um, but on the other hand we have had some very famous cases of officer-involved shootings uh, of uh, people of color in here in Utah I wonder I wonder if we've been talking with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones if any of this is resonating from the perspective of someone li- living in Utah what's what's the attitude of uh i guess the communities of color here
1: mm-hmm. uh definitely this isn't an issue that happens um outside of utah it, it it's it's here as well as a woman of color as a Latina, i definitely um have have uh had friends you know and colleagues and just um as being someone who's participating in the community, had people share their stories. Um, And uh, at our Race We Utah event, uh, where people were able to come up and speak and tell their stories, actually a lot, a lot of their stories had to do with law enforcement, um, from the level of students feeling that they were being criminalized um, in school or on the street to friends that I have are in college who their only mistake that warranted um, a, p- a visit from a law enforcement officer was riding their bike where I guess having a suspicious bag attached to their bike. And uh, yes, definitely. It's something that's also very prevalent in Utah as well.
0: I was interesting to learn. I went to your Facebook page for Racially Just uh, Utah. Uh, you're having a series of community conversations, at least you're participating. Uh, community Conversations, the the title is <laughs> very stark. Use of Force, Know Your Rights.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, so that that event that um, this Utah uh, members are invited to participate in uh, is part of a series of conversation dialogues that Mayor Becker has put on on the topic of use of force and uh, there's definitely, uh, uh, the previous dialogues that have happened, the last ones happening today, um, there's definitely frustration, and uh, I feel like the most common uh, issue that was brought up was this feeling of a lack of trust of officers after some sort of questionable incident, uh, a lack of trust of them being able to hold themselves accountable, of a desire for transparency.
0: Let's let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a ProPublica reporter, wrote uh, this very impactful uh, piece, uh, which is published simultaneously by ProPublica and Politico magazine. In Politico, it was uh, titled A Letter from Black America. And uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is recounting some personal experiences and uh, trying to help uh, the rest of us understand the attitude, um, the history behind uh, some things that we're seeing now coming forward with this um, horrifying uh, series of officer involved shootings. And now we have some officers being shot. It's uh, it's a very tense situation happening, not just in one part of the country, but in, in many areas. And we've had some of these incidents in Utah as well. So we're talking about issues of race on the program today you're welcome to join us what's your perspective have you had an experience 1-800-826-1495 1-800-826-1495 you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com and we're on twitter at utah public radio more following the break Every week, there's new science, new technologies, and new discoveries that affect our health, our world, and our environment. And every week, Living on Earth is there to report, analyze, and comment to make sure you know what's happening and how it may affect you. So
3: don't miss out. Tune in right here to hear what we have to offer. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's this week and every week on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and USU's College of Science, Science Unwrapped. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, Salty Metaphors, Land Art of the Great Salt Lake, with USU Art System Co-Director Mark Lee Coven. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. The The list I mentioned before the break is depressing. Of course, the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. We've had the incidents of John Crawford III, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. We've had incidents who have been internationally publicized here in Utah. And that's just officer-involved shootings. We've had officers shot as as well. And uh, that is just uh, sort of the tip of the iceberg, many people are, are telling us. We were talking about race in America today and in Utah, and our guests include Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a ProPublica reporter, and uh, her piece uh, titled in Pro- Political Magazine is titled uh, A Letter from Black America, is also published in ProPublica. And we're talking as well with Kathy Abarka, a racial justice associate with ACL Utah and member of Racially Just Utah. Uh, so, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I wonder if we could uh, move ahead to another incident uh, in, in your piece. This is after, well, let me preface this by saying you, uh, you moved from Portland to New York, and you chose your home in, in Brooklyn in part because it was near a police precinct.
2: Yes, I mean, I think when people move from one place to another, and particularly to uh, a very big city like like New York, uh, you want to make sure that you're moving into a safe area. And um, I thought having a police precinct around the corner would mean that uh, there would be less likely to be crime where I moved.
0: And, th- and then the, the, the officers got shot, and uh, unfortunately, and, and killed there. And uh, tell me what you, what you did.
2: So, of, of course, a, a mentally ill man who had shot his girlfriend in Baltimore and then came up to New York and um, ambushed and killed two police officers. That that killing actually happened uh, just a couple blocks from my house, and those officers were working out of the precinct that's right around the corner from me. And like most or nearly all Americans, I'm sure I was I was deeply troubled by that. I'm deeply troubled when anyone is killed, and I was thinking a lot about those officers. So my husband and I took some food um and some flowers to the precinct and um as is fairly typical in that precinct we weren't greeted when we came in and um we told the the officer at the desk that we were here to drop off the food and the flowers and and our condolences which seemed to disarm him a bit um he thanked us for them and and we left but um then the next day, I drove by the precinct, and they had um, armed guards out front, uh, really police snipers with large assault weapons. They had barricaded off the precinct. Um, it was frightening to my daughter, and, and you just there was just a sense that um, they they believed they were an enemy turf, and that they didn't believe that they were uh, there to be with the community, but that there was fear of the community.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's a the sense of, uh, you know, you, you broke down a barrier in a sense, but then, then it went right back up. Right. Uh, so I wonder, uh, let me just quote you again from your article. Uh, you say since 1935, and you're, you're quoting uh, someone else here, I think, uh, nearly every so-called race riot in the United States, and there have been more than 100, has been sparked by a police incident. Uh, and this can be an act of brutality or senseless killing, but the underlying causes run much deeper and, and you're going to say police, because they interact with black communities every day, are often seen as the face of larger systems of inequality in the justice system, employment, education, uh, housing. Um, so I, I suppose you would say that these uh, these unfortunate incidents we're seeing uh, that that is tip of the iceberg. That that's Those are indications, those are symptoms of a larger problem.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can look at any statistic of well being in this country and black Americans are at the bottom of those statistics. Um, often policing is happening in highly segregated neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have been cut off from many resources that have poor city services. And police are often the only um, public officials that communities are interacting with on a daily basis. And the sense is that. Um, and, and there's some truth to this, that the police are there kind of acting on behalf of of different agents to control the population, that there's a sense that black communities are, are communities that need to be controlled, that these communities overall are criminal. And so there's a great deal of tension, but it's also a physical interaction. So you can't see on a daily basis the people who make decisions that lead to segregated schools or the people who make decisions that don't uh, put develop it, development in poor black communities. But you do see on a daily basis police, and that contact can often be physical. And I think because of that, it, it makes the contact between police and these communities very combustible.
0: We have received a couple of questions from a, a listener who wants to remain anonymous. Very interesting questions, I thought. Um, so let me address the this one to uh, Kathy Barca first. Um, so this this listener says many white people are afraid to talk about race because they fear they'll be called out or blamed how can we make the discussion on race more inclusive of all perspectives and experiences
1: mm-hmm. um, uh, I think the response to that is its I, mean, I think that's I, I think that's a a, 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 a a good and sincere sentiment that you know it's, it's a scary conversation to have. It's a complex and hard conversation to have. Um, however, it, it, it needs to be done. Uh, for many people of color, the situation is it, an urgent situation. You go out and you have to carry with you a sense of fear. You know, um, am I going to be pulled over today for such and such? Uh, when I go to the grocery store today, am I going to be looked suspiciously because I put my hands in my pockets? And so I feel like those sort of a motivation um, if you don't already have friends of color to kind of seek out those environments to get a sense of how urgent the situation is, and then also to be honest and to and to seek out those conversations because they they're very necessary and um, the path to being a, a good white ally it, it, it's a it's a long one, it's a lifelong one and uh it, it, take, it takes a lot of work. So to know that also upfront, but it, it, it's a lifelong process too, to okay. being a, a good white ally and to being able to have these conversations and um, to be able to advocate and be in solidarity with um, communities of color.
0: Nicole Hannah Jones, I guess, is a similar question to to you. Is it what 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 needs to be done? Do you think it does it start with a conversation? What what do you think?
2: Well, I think I think the problem is often the framing. The framing is a conversation about race, but the framing needs to be a conversation about racism. And I think the conversations always tend to be very personal, but the issues are structural. Um, it's not whether an individual person holds racial animus or not, or is a good person or not. It's about structural issues. What happened in Ferguson was structural. You had an entire system of law enforcement that was basing revenue on the harassment and often unconscious. Uh, constitutional violations of its black citizenry. So I think that's the problem, is we we want to talk about race and as if it's an individual issue and not talk about racism as a structural issue. Hmm. When you do that, it takes away these feelings of, is someone going to call me racist, and really looks at, at the system.
0: So th- th- this gets to a, 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 our, our, our listener has a, th- this question. I think you've answered this in part. Uh, they say the words "racism" and "racist" seem to be thrown awa- around quite a bit when discussing race relations, and uh, they're asking you to help us understand what the definition of racism is, what is and what isn't racism.
2: I mean, I I don't know that there is one textbook definition. Uh, I think if, if you if people actually read the Ferguson report, it's very clear that um, the the policies were implemented. Against black people, and that there was racial animus. Um, when you look at the emails, where they were openly making racist jokes um, against black Americans, where they were they were saying that black Americans were criminal as a group. Um, but I think we don't need to get caught up in in definitions. You can look at a policy, and if it's disproportionately harming one group or another, then that's a policy that we need to address. Um, we often get caught up in what's the intent. someone intend to hurt someone? I think what matters more is: do policies or do actions hurt people? And then, or excuse me, then it doesn't matter what the intent was. I don't think we need to worry about so much whether we can call someone racist or not, or we can name a certain behavior as racist or not. I think it's, it's actually what are the impacts of that behavior um, that are. That's the critical question.
0: What, so you've talked about uh, structural problems. Um, you mentioned several. How would you prioritize those in terms of what what we need to work on?
2: Uh, that's that's a hard question. Um, I think I think much smarter people who are paid to analyze these <laughs> things than me would be the one to answer that. Yeah. Because how do you prioritize? One is dealing with kind of the physical safety of people. Other issues are dealing with educational opportunity, health, um, jobs. I, I don't know how, how you pri- prioritize any one of those over another.
0: Uh, uh, let me ask you, um, it, you, you work on, uh, I think, reporting on housing, right? Well, that's one part of your beat. That's the, one of pro- the areas. I, I cover
2: civil rights, and I've, I focus largely on housing and school segregation.
0: Yeah. So let me ask, ask you about, about housing. Is, uh, you know, the, the federal laws now prevent Intentional segregation, are those being followed? What, do, you well, know, do, we, do we have continued federal problems?
2: laws prohibit uh, intentional segregation, but I, I did a year-and-a-half investigation that showed the federal government and actually most local governments are doing very little to enforce the Fair Housing Act. So our, our civil rights laws are actually pretty good. The enforcement is what's lacking, and the will to enforce the laws are what's lacking. Um So I think you can look at any number of policies, such as where communities put affordable housing, how communities zone, um, how communities enforce housing code, and you can see that um, practices are definitely happening that reinforce segregation. But there's very little will to actually do something about it.
0: If you just joined us, we are talking about uh, race issues in America. We're responding, of course, to all these incidents that keep happening—police uh, uh, officer officer-involved shootings, um, officers themselves getting shot—and that's just tip of the iceberg. Uh, we have uh, incidents like the one that recently happened in in the South, where a, uh, a, a an Eastern Indian man, elderly man, was. Uh, uh, in a neighborhood, a white neighborhood, uh, the the incident was called in. The, the man was tackled to the ground and uh, ended up paralyzed. These these incidents keep coming in, and we're responding to this. Uh, wondering what your thoughts on this are. And the the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. You can join us at upraxis gmail dot com, and we're on Twitter at utah public radio. We're talking with Nicole Hannah Jones, ProPublica reporter. She uh, published recently a very interesting personal experience. Uh, in ProPublica and Political Magazine. And uh, Kathy Abarca joins us as well, a racial justice associate with ACLU Utah and a member of Racially Just uh, Utah. Kathy Abarca, I'm interested in the makeup of Racially Just Utah. This is a this is a diverse organization. So tell me about the makeup of the organization first. Racially um, Just
1: Utah is uh, racially and ethnically diverse group uh, made up of grassroots and grass-tops uh, leaders um, from all walks of life, from people who are affiliated with uh, large nonprofits, uh, to people who just kind of came up and, and um, reached out to us. And it's, it's a really diverse group.
0: And what are the, what are the concerns? What are, you, what are you talking about there at Racially Just Utah?
1: Um, well, sort of uh, what was got, um, what Nicole kind of spoke to before, just uh, racial justice issues touch on so many facets of uh, people's lives. We haven't really uh, uh, con- uh, condensed it to, us to our any sort of specific one issue, but right now our focus really has been around issues such as the school to prison pipeline where students of color have been disproportionately and harsh, more harshly disciplined uh, in school, and that's pushing them out of school and putting them at risk of being incarcerated, but also criminal justice issues.
0: Now, the legislature in Utah just passed a uh, set of criminal justice reforms. What what's you what mm-hmm. feeling about that, including, um, you know, uh, diverting um, drug offenses and, into drug courts and, and treatment instead of to jail? I wonder what your feeling mm-hmm. is about that see that as progress?
1: I I do think that that the criminal justice reforms were definitely a really great um, step in the right direction. And uh, especially in light that in Utah, we, much like other states in the country, are disproportionately incarcerating people of color. And so I think that was a really great great thing to see. Of course, things could, could always go further, and I would have liked to have seen race Um, be a more explicit part of the conversation, and for those voices to have been bought in. But I do think it was definitely a step in the right direction.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me turn back to Nicole Hannah jones You bring up something that Rudy Giuliani said, and and I I know he's not alone in these sentiments. I don't know how representative he is, but he said, uh, reacting to Ferguson, police wouldn't need to be there in force if you weren't, meaning black community, if you weren't killing each other. Um, I wonder if you could re- recount your your rebuttal to that.
2: Well, I think that is a pretty common sentiment. Um, I definitely get that in the emails and comments um, on my articles, and if you look at any comments sections on these pieces, and off, and, and even pundits, um, I, I think that that's a, a particularly nefarious um, strain of thought for a couple of reasons. One, that somehow the people who are most being victimized by crime somehow deserve police abuse because of that, um, really turns on its head the role of law enforcement, which is to protect citizens from uh, the criminal element among them. And two, I think it's this kind of um, racial line that's only drawn with people of color. White Americans are also mostly killed by other white Americans. And no one says that because of white-on-white crime, somehow white Americans deserve to be abused by the police or deserve to be occupied by a police force. This is only comes up when you're talking about this this thing of black-on-black crime. All crime is, is mostly interracial because... because um, Crime is usually a matter of opportunity, and you prey upon the people who live closest to you, and because we live in a segregated country, uh, the people who live closest to white people are generally white, and the people who live closest to black people are generally black. Um, So I think that that's very problematic. But I also think what's problematic is the use of statistics to somehow pretend that all black people are criminal, or black people are mostly criminal. It's a very tiny, tiny number of black people who are actually involved in crime, and that all black Americans, because they share some racial designation with with a criminal element among them, should be viewed and treated with suspicion is highly problematic, and it's actually unconstitutional. Um, one of the things that I often say to people is, statistically, we know that. Um, white males are much more likely to be involved in mass shootings but does that then mean that white males deserve then to be treated with suspicion and that we should pass white americans as um, being likely to be involved in mass shootings because of a small number of people who do that should we hold um, males in general in much more suspicion and stop and frisk every male that we see because males are more likely to be involved in a violent crime than females. So I think that argument um, only holds true because we, we still have a problem with race in this country, but that we don't apply that to any other group.
0: Part of this, I, I think, uh, is where at least some elements of our society is, is just yearning to move move beyond the problem, move beyond the history and, and I, I think there you know there, there's some who, who say, can't we just can't we just move on? We, we should just move on. But of course, it's more complicated than that. You recount some of the history with regard to policing in your article that uh, I think that the memories perhaps are longer in, in the black community about that than we've perhaps forgotten some of this in, in the white community. For example, in the South, the uh, police was just an arm of the, of the KKK in some instances.
2: Right. I mean, I think if any group would benefit from us moving on, it would be black Americans. I think black Americans would love for race not to be a factor um, because race is far more than just being an uncomfortable topic of conversation for black and brown communities. Race really circumscribes um, people's lives and freedom. So I always think that that's a, a disingenuous thing to say. And what's also disingenuous about it is that on the one hand um, – People are arguing that people we should move on from race, but we'll quickly bring out um, racialized statistics to prove why black and brown Americans deserve to be treated as less than full citizens. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say black people do this, black people do that, but then say, let's just forget about race. Race doesn't matter. So I think we just—we we have not dealt with the issue again. What um, segregation does is it allows people not to see the way that different groups are treated differently by law enforcement, by educators, by all types of things. And so um, if America, you know, if the police generally treat you well, um, if you only interact with them when you need them, if they're respectful to you, if they're not stopping you um, when you haven't done anything wrong, then it's easy to believe that there's not a problem.
0: Let's bring in a caller. Paul in Logan has called us. Paul, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment.
1: Uh, Good morning. I'm glad you're having this conversation today. Uh, I don't want to water down the conversation on race at all, but I'd like um, your guests to address the idea of militarization in our police. uh, uh, One of the guests mentioned the barricading of our neighborhood precinct house, and I've seen these kinds of things in, in our police force here in Logan, Utah. But it seems to me that that sort of amps up uh, the racial tensions that are already there, or amplifies them uh, quite a bit more. Just that 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 physical stance that the police are now seem to be taking across our nation. So I'll take the answer off the air.
0: Thanks for that, Paul. Let me address this first to Kathy Abarka. What uh, are you concerned about militarization of the police?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's the most, um, the, like, a large and physical manifestation of this us-versus-them mentality. Um, it, 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 it's a manifestation that shows that there's this lack of trust and it's completely against this, uh, this desire for community policing that I feel is, is very necessary. It, it, if, if we want to build better relationships with the community and also... Uh, particularly with people of color in and, and those communities, um, the way isn't to come in um, guns blazing with um, highly militarized looking um, like you, you could coming in from the army but that's not exactly sending the right message to start honest conversations to make changes um, to law enforcement policies and practices.
0: Nicole Hannah Jones uh, you, you you talked about that a bit to the you know surveillance towers. Um... Et cetera. Militarization of police, I wonder if you could comment.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I agree with um the woman from the ACLU. I think it's absolutely um what it does is it it creates this kind of siege mentality, not only um um among police but among communities because even though crime is at historic lows when you're seeing police rolling out tanks when they're having arsenals, drones, all of these things, then, then people actually begin to think that, well, crime must still really be a problem. Um, And despite statistics showing that, for instance, in New York City, I mean, we are at record low uh, murder rates, and and most violent crimes are at record lows. So I think that uh, what also happens is when police departments get all these, like, fancy weapons and tools, they want to use them. And so it doesn't give them really the motivation to kind of defuse tensions, but instead to ramp them up. And I think it's, it's very problematic. Um, we should never have a police force that feels or looks like it's at war with its citizens. Its citizens are who the, the police force is supposed to be serving.
0: Let's take another break. When we come back uh, more, last segment with Nicole Hannah jones ProPublica reporter, and Kathy Barca, racial justice associate with ACLU Utah and a member of Racially Just Utah. And we hope to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, we'd uh, love to accommodate that. Our discussion is on race. And uh, the phone number is 1-800-826-1495 upraccess at gmail.com is the email, and you can join us on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio.
2: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour,
0: we'll explore Canada, which is a magnet for world music artists from around the globe. You can dance to a hot Latin band, enjoy the delicate beauty of love songs from India, or sway to the rhythms of calypso and reggae. I'm Dan Storper
2: And I'm Rosalie Howarth Join us for World Music in Canada The next Putumayo World Music Hour
3: Coming this Friday evening on Utah Public Radio. And support on Utah Public Radio comes from our members and USU Dining Services, proud sponsor and facilitator of the chef cook off and fundraiser Spice on Ice, featuring USU's culinary team as well as chefs from around the valley on Tuesday, March 24th.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah, We're talking about uh, race. In America and in Utah, and in the light, of course, of the uh, ongoing incidents, uh, officer-involved shootings, we've had the uh, incident at the University of Oklahoma, University of Maryland, the list keeps getting larger. We have had incidents uh, here in Utah as well, and we're talking with Kathy Abarka, who is with ACLU Utah and a member of Racially Just Utah. We're also talking with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a ProPublica reporter and uh, we're urging you to check out her recent uh, article, Some Personal Experiences, that she recounts. It's uh, published in ProPublica and Politico magazine. In Politico, it's uh, titled A Letter from Black America. You can join us here. We have uh, another uh, six or seven minutes left in the conversation at upraccess at gmail.com or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. The phone number is 1-800-826-1495. Let me start uh, this segment with... Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, um, I don't know if you call it a, a mantra, the slogan that we've been seeing a lot in, in Wake of Ferguson and, and in other protests is Black Lives Matter. And I, I think it's it's my impression that there's a bit of a gap there in understanding that between, between the two worlds, you know, what, white and black America, white and people of color. Would you could talk a little bit about that, the sentiment behind that, Black Lives Matter?
2: Well, I think... Black Lives Matter comes from a very deep uh, place of hurt and of feeling, of many black Americans feeling as if they must always prove their citizenship, their humanity, their worth. Um, And it really is um, uh, saying that black people's lives are no less valuable than anyone else. And um, the need to do that should be, to assert that should be very troubling to many Americans. I mean, one of the, the images that came out of Ferguson, um, there lots of photos showed black protesters wrapping themselves in the American flag in an effort to, to show to white Americans and, and other Americans that they are indeed citizens and, and should not be abused by police and should not be afraid of police. There was a, a young lady during the protest, and, and I, I I've never forgotten. She she said, America, stand up for us. And she was carrying a flag. So um, I think it, it really comes from a generational hurt, a feeling that um, black Americans are not seen as valuable, that their lives are not seen as important.
0: Kathy Barker, I wonder if you, is there similar sentiment among, the say, the Latino community?
1: Um, yes. Uh, I think definitely there's this uh, sentiment that... Um, Constantly having to prove um, um, citizenship especially um, but looking at the Latino community um, uh, where a lot a lot of us get have these stories of uh, as being assumed to be undocumented of being you know slurs and like being called illegal and I think that extra layer there uh, in this community um, it's, it's definitely there uh, you know it's just' Similarly, in in every aspect, in each part of the pipeline, you look at the entire criminal justice pipeline, from school to incarceration to coming out. um, It's a a similar story.
0: I wonder, uh, back to Nicole Hannah-Brown, there's a a brief story you you, uh, recount in your, your article. This is the one I'm, I don't know, for some reason, I'm just having trouble getting him out of my mind. And this is your neighbor who's... Somewhat disheveled, um, didn't get into trouble, but he had an encounter with the police, and, and it went downhill. I wonder if you tell that story.
2: Right. Um, so he's um, he's just one of the, the guys who hangs in the neighborhood. He's very low-income, um, a, a little bit transient, but is a great neighbor, very kind, very nice, very quiet, minds his business. And he, he just went to the bodega, which is right next to my house, Uh, The police roll up, Uh, he comes outside, and they ask to search him. And he asks, what what have I done? Why are you stopping me? And and immediately he's thrown to the ground. He's tased. Um, He's bruised and battered. It was all um, videotaped by uh, a passerby who didn't understand why this man was being harassed. He's arrested, taken to jail, and the only charge he ended up getting was resisting arrest, which then again makes you wonder why was he stopped in the first place because obviously there was there was uh, no charge or he was doing nothing we deserved to be stopped and as a result of that he had actually just gotten a job as a bike messenger he needed his cell phone the police confiscated his cell phone and he didn't get it back for a couple of weeks And because um, the employer could not reach him to send him out on deliveries he was fired from his job um and he now has to pay a fine if he can't pay the fine which he will not be able to pay the fine because he doesn't have income they will issue an arrest warrant for him and actually at this point they probably have done that um, So i think it was just a, a very stark story about how policing can actually create criminals uh, of law-abiding citizens and how literally just a trip to the store can change your life if you are um, a black person in this country
0: Re- reaching the end of our conversation, I wonder. Uh, taking off from that, what what's the remedy? We, we've been focusing uh, this hour, I think, mostly on policing. So let, let's let's uh, stay there. What what would be a start? Interaction, uh, more interaction between the police and, and the community. Um, community policing principles. What where's where do we start?
2: I mean. On the one hand it's it's very difficult. The issues are very, very pervasive, they're long standing. Um, as I trace in my article, the history of how uh policing has happened in black communities is very long in this country. But that doesn't mean that that it can't change. I think community policing is a big start. Um office getting officers who actually live in the communities, a lot of the police force lives in suburbs. They come into um these high poverty segregated neighborhoods and Um, They don't know the communities. They don't know the people. They have a lot of stereotypes about the people that they serve. Um, Also, a big problem is um, ComStat. So in New York City, uh, officers were pushed to make citations, to be showing that they were kind of actively uh, stopping and, and questioning people, of uh, the now um, unconstitutional stop and frisk program. And so when you're, you're basing policing practices on numbers and not basing them on actually trying to stop crime, um, we know who's going to be hurt most by that, and that's the most vulnerable citizen. So uh, most people say that, that community policing is necessary, but I also think they, there needs to be very deep structural reforms in, in law enforcement
0: just a minute left. Uh, uh, same question to Kathy Barker. What, what would you like to see? Any specific changes in interaction between um, p- police and the community?
1: Actually, very perfect timing <laughs> for, for this talk today. Um, today, Racially Does Utah is going to be um, putting a post on our Facebook page um, all about the kind of reforms and things that we want to see concerning um, police training and just general reforms around law enforcement policies and practices but I think also, um, uh, just to speak to what Nicole said, bring it back to Utah, um, that community uh, policing needs to happen, but I also really agree that it needs to also be, re- the officers need to be reflective of the communities that they serve. For example, West Valley, not so long ago, was getting um, some publicity around the fact that they have about, I believe, 5% of their officers are Hispanic, where 35% of, their po- of the population is Hispanic. So I definitely agree that those things need to happen. I also believe that, um, more dialogues need to happen. I, uh, um, applaud Mayor Becker for putting on, um, the dialogues on use of force. More of these honest conversations need to happen. There also needs to be institutional and cultural changes. There needs to be training for, um against implicit bias. When I, er, you know, racial went to one of the mayor's discussions, um, I asked, uh, we, Discussion around implicit bias came up, and I found the officer who responded their answer questionable because it seemed that they didn't really understand the difference between explicit and implicit bias.
0: We will leave it there. We're out of time, uh, but you can go to Racially Just Utah, the Facebook page. There is a community conversation tonight, uh, 6 to 8 Sorensen Unity uh, Center in uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, we thank Kathy Abarka, who is with ACL Utah and a member of uh, Racially Just Utah. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for
0: having me. And Nicole Hanna-Jones is uh, a a ProPublica reporter, and her very impactful article can be found in ProPublica and Political Magazine. Uh, Nicole Hannah jones thank you so much.
2: Thank you, and thank you for dedicating so much time to the issue.
0: And I hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah.
3: With the recent crusade, to put an end to the observation of daylight saving time, I had a few thoughts. In Logan, we enjoy approximately 16 hours of daylight during the summer months, and in the winter time, about 9 hours. Daylight saving, or advance time, shifts a perceived extra hour of daylight to the evening. Geographically, our summer sunrise occurs naturally about 4.30 in the morning and sunset about 8.30 in the evening, which is where the rubber meets the road. As far as the metropolitan areas along the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains are concerned, do we really need the day to dawn at 4.30? Wouldn't it be better for the daylight to last a little later in the evening for recreation, agriculture, and so forth? Perhaps we should fix ourselves permanently on daylight saving time. Now, I've heard many arguments from the parents of school-aged children to farmers to businessmen. Here's a few of my thoughts on these matters. I've heard parents voice concern about their children having to go to school in the dark. This is something that the elementary school children never do. The sun might not be high in the sky, but it is certainly not dark at 8 or 9 in the morning during the school year. Middle schoolers in my school district go to school in the dark for most of the school year, but this is to meet district busing schedules. If parents are unhappy about this situation, it sounds more like a topic for discussion with your local school board rather than the basis for the reckoning of time for such a vast and varied geographic area. Some might argue that farmers pay no mind to where the sun is in the sky. They work all day long. For the farmer, the time of day becomes a problem when it comes to the commerce side of farming. I don't think the cows themselves worry so much about the time. Others have said that we need to be in alignment with Arizona. Uh, why? Arizona does not observe daylight saving time as they do not need the extra hours of heat. Still, others say Idaho has plenty of light. No need for daylight saving time there either. Well, being further north, the sunrise and sunset times are even more pronounced. Remember, if you go far enough north, the sun stays up 24 hours a day during the summer. Now, if we were to fix ourselves to standard time, as has been proposed, and my employer were to say that I could come into work at 6 in the morning, take lunch at 10, and be out the door by 3 in the afternoon, then I would get the benefit of some daylight to work in the yard or around the house in the afternoon or evening, or perhaps to go do something fun. Trying to stay asleep as the sun is coming up into my windows four hours before I have to be to work, and then having to rush home to get as much done before dark, doesn't sound too appealing to me. If we're going to do something concerning the reckoning of time and not spring forward or fall back, then as far as Utah is concerned, a better course of action would be to fix ourselves permanently on daylight saving or mountain advanced time. We get the daylight, but it's of greater benefit to us all. An additional benefit of being fixed to advanced time comes during the winter. At least I wouldn't be leaving for work and leaving for home in the dark. One last observation, I'm perplexed as to why there are fewer complaints when we get that extra hour of sleep in the fall. I'm Fred Weller.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.